Good morning, everybody. So great to be with all of you this morning. My name is Tyler, uh, and I'm uh, the Director of Communications here at San Diego First Church. I'm excited to worship with you all this morning. Uh, here at SDFC, our mission is to lift up Christ, and our hope is that we have the opportunity to do that this morning through our worship, and also as we continue into the days and weeks to come. Um, at any point during the service, if you have uh, the desire to have some kind of tangible, physical action to represent a prayer that you have for yourself or somebody else, I invite you at any time to make your way to the candle tables that we have on either side of the room here um, and light a candle as a manifestation of that prayer. Uh, before we begin our worship through music this morning, will you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for this opportunity uh, to gather together and worship you. Will you remind us, Lord, that every one of us in this room today woke up this morning with different emotions, different joys, different fears, different worries, and we bring all of that individual context into this space today. But our goal is common, to lift up your name, to worship you, and to continue to lift up Christ in all that we do through our worship this morning and in the days and weeks to come. We give you all praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you are able, let's stand together. Let us approach God together. And would you join me as we read through Revelation 4 here. Join and read this with me. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Oh Lord, we take your word today, and we turn it into song, and we turn it into praise. For you are deserving of all things. Sing with me. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. You are worthy of it all.
so that we may be inspired to worship you in your ways, in your holy name. Oh, let your praise to God this morning. pray for us. Lord, in so many ways, we are able to compare what is written in Psalm 79 to the world in which we live in today. A world in which we constantly need your provision and we constantly need better awareness of what your will is for us. so many ways we fall short of what you have for us, God. And we thank you that you continue to forgive us, that you continue to love us, and you continue to pour out your grace to us. God, there are some of us in this space now that are able to rejoice in the many blessings that you have given and provided. And Lord, for that, we thank you for the way in which you continue to look to restore and redeem your creation. And Lord, there are many of us that have such a hard time with life right now, that things are not going in the way in which we hoped. And maybe we even feel so far from your presence. 
so God, we cry out to you. We sing, we pray, and we cry out, Lord, Lord, help us and save us. So this morning, Lord, we come before you, offering our honest selves in spirit and in truth.
Romans 5, it says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And so I would hope for us as our church, San Diego First Church, but also our global church, that we are able to use what we can, whether it is blessing or suffering, to glorify God in all that we do. So let us return with worship and sing with me. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. And I want to give you a chance this morning as we continue in our worship to see each other's faces as we pass the peace of Christ to one another. Would you go and do so?
Good morning, good morning. Hi. As you make your way back to your seats, um, we are going to pray our children out for Children's Church. I would normally be going out, but then I have something special to tell you afterwards. So if you look up to the screen, let's pray this together. This is my prayer for you, our children, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. May you be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. I'll see you in a few minutes, kids. Have fun. Yeah. All right. First and foremost, if you haven't already, please go ahead and check in with the QR code that is up there or it's on your handy dandy bulletin. We'd love to know that you're here. It's great for us. We, we go over it so we know and because we love you. All right. Number two, we have a musician and tech hang coming yeah, up this we week. Do. Yeah, Austin is excited. Yeah, we do. This is, this is so fun for him. On Tuesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. in the Ellipse, if you have ever been up on this stage for worship or you've been in the booth or in the music booth, there's so many places you could have been. But if you have served with us as a musician or a tech, please come and hang out with us. We'd love to, to hang with you. It'll be a good time. What are, what are you doing? Food. Food. Games. Games. Dessert. Dessert. I... I don't know what else I need Music. to say. I feel like I said most I, of I'm sold. I'll be there, so I hope to see you there. Yeah, that's it. Um, third on my list, Women's Day Retreat is coming up in October. We would love to have you there. It's led by Shannon Heffernan, who is working very hard to put this together for you ladies. Um, it's going to be wreath-making, fall wreaths. Very about that. Um, potluck brunch, bring your favorite dish and some prayer time for us as we gather together for a few hours. Uh, registration for that will be coming up hopefully this week, and you can do that online. It'll come out email as well, so be looking for that. We'd love to have you there. My personal favorite thing is coming up. I'm very excited. We haven't done this in a while, and I am over the moon. Um, it's coming back, baby, and I'm very, very excited, as you can tell. Um, that is October 16th, after, immediately following church, over in the FLC. We need pie donations. Sign-ups are already open for if you want to make a pie or a cake. We allow cake. Um, and also to enter our chili competition. Any chili makers out there? Tyler, over there. Doug, he's already signed up. All right, so you got an email this week in the newsletter. There's a button you can click to sign up for either pie, chili, or both. Go big or go home, am I right? Um, and I hope to see your name on there. Or you can come talk to me or email me, whatever you want to do, whatever's easiest. I just want your name up. So I'm glitching over here. Um, okay, last but not least, we're going to do our Wednesday wrap-up. How many of you have been to a Wednesday night dinner so far since they started in September? I've been to both. And uh, this week is tacos. Tacos, our favorite food. Okay, so Wednesday night, we have our Wednesday night dinners. And then we also, Austin over here has been working very hard on his, um, what is it called? Uh, it's just, oh, it's uh, just on the screen right there. It just says adult you have. Oh, habits of worship. That's exactly what it is. That's uh, exactly what it is. Yeah, we've been, I've been having a lot of great discussions and conversations with people that have been there. And it's been really great and fruitful. And I think we've been able to 
see all the different kind of colors that go into this painting of worship. And it's not just coloring with blue, like music, but we're able to see like the wide spectrum of what worship is and what it's meant to be for us in our lives. And this next week I'm really excited about because we're, we're going to be learning from two pros and that's um, Dr. Reverend uh, Rebecca Laird. And then um, surprisingly Reverend George Williamson. I didn't know he was Reverend until I asked, but he's Reverend. Yeah, George Williamson, go up to him for pastoral care and leadership. Um, and we're gonna be, we're gonna be uh, just talking about, uh, last week we were talking about how habits build our identity and what are the habits that we need to take in order to form the identity of image of Christ and what are the habits for us as an individual to become the identity of a worshiper. And this is the application night this week where we're going to be in Brown and we're going to listen and hear and learn from both uh, Dr. Laird and George Williamson. And we'll actually have time to be able to go through different stations um, of spiritual disciplines and practices that you can implement in your individual life. And we'll talk about some that we want to implement here as our congregation meets on every Sunday. So looking forward to that Wednesday night. 6.30, right over there in the fireside plaza, or fireside lobby. There you go. All that information, so good. Thanks, Austin. Um, truly, he's been working so hard on that. We'd love for, for you to come and uh, be a part of that. All right, we are going to continue on with worship as Katie and Ashley lead us into this next song.
privilege of reading from a particular interesting scripture from the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, well, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will come and they'll welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors and he asked them first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of oil olive oil, he replied, and the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So. If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Nobody can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word of the Lord.
Good morning, my name is Dee, and uh, just a privilege as always to dig into the Word this morning with you. I love Daryl's preface by saying um, a rather interesting passage. Um, it's kind of a kind treatment for those who dig into this passage. It's not just interesting, it's incredibly difficult. We'll dig into that shortly. Um, I, I did want to bring to your attention, I, I, there are so many um, needs that I could bring to your attention uh, but I often just bring ones that maybe you're not aware of or that um, maybe had not made it to you for a variety of reasons. Um, though there are many others, I, I would like to simply mention that I hope you will continue to remember the Shea family in your prayers, Barb and Jean. Uh, Barb is, it seems to me, in good spirits, but... Um, the physical journey that she's on is um, deteriorating and just that um, God would be close to her and give the whole family peace and give Jean wisdom and grace and patience in all of these moments. Just remember Barb and Jean in your prayers. And then um, some of you may know, many of you won't because it's been quite a few years uh, since Pam and her family attended here, but Pam and Rick Oden are neighbors of our church about four blocks away down on John Street. Um, their kids have been at various times growing up, though they are grown adults now, part of our um, journey as a church. And Rick passed away, and um, it's been a long, difficult health journey over the course of the last few years. And there will be a memorial service the first Saturday in October in the Ellipse, and I just wanted you to be aware of it for those of you that might know them or might remember them as part of the church family here during a period of time. Um, I, I know that you've heard many times of some of the wonderful opportunities I've had to take hikes or go on uh, Jeep adventures or four-wheel all-terrain vehicles. Um, there was one that we took um, one time that was uh, in the Moab area, and if you've been to Moab, you know it's a wonderful area where the Arches National Park is, and you can see some of the amazing rock formations in that national park. Across the northwest, uh, pardon me, north-south rural route that borders the western side of Arches National Park is some wide open territory that is free for the four-wheeling Jeep enthusiast, whatever the case might be. Um, we have, at two different occasions, rented um, an all-terrain vehicle to take some of the more difficult pathways of that particular area, those trails. And um, when just remember ringing into my mind a moment that seems so fitting for this passage that we're looking at, where we were looking at a particular run that looked like it would be difficult to do, and if not navigated correctly, was not overtly dangerous, but could cause some boulders to... Um, hit the vehicle in such a way that it would not be easy on the vehicle. And I can't remember if I said it or my friend said it, well, it's just a rental. 
And I don't know why that makes you feel like you have permission to do things because you're going to get charged with the deposit or damage or insurance or whatever. But there is sometimes this mentality, it's just a rental, that somehow makes you less attentive or less caring than if it was your own vehicle and you know that you don't know how to repair it if something goes wrong with it. Sometimes you apply that to other things in life. I think that that phrase is the bane of all rental vehicle companies and wish that they'd never heard that phrase ever used. But I I think of the way in which we live out the religious faith that we profess. And I would propose that as we step into this passage in Luke chapter 16, that we consider that at times we treat our faith as if it's just a rental. That we are not taking ownership for what has been entrusted to us as owners, but instead treat it as somewhat disposable. And so we come to this passage, and I want to set the context like I did last week. We've been in this series in Luke, and Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and the journey to Jerusalem spans about 11 chapters, from chapter 9 to chapter 19. And when we get to the passages that include um, a lot of parables and storytelling, Jesus, 14, on his way to Jerusalem, turns around and addresses the crowd, this large crowd that is gathered. And then at the beginning of chapter 15, the three parables that we looked at last week, he turns and addresses the Pharisees. And now we come to chapter 16, and it says in verse 1 that Jesus turns and addresses the disciples. But we know that the Pharisees are listening in because when we get to the end of this storyline, just past verse 13, we find that the Pharisees react to what Jesus says. So this is a message to the disciples, but fully aware that the, that the Pharisees are hearing what's being said and are picking up their own sense of what the message might be to them. We also have to wrestle a little bit with what Jesus says and the storyline that Luke is building. Luke has an audience to whom he's writing and tries to set up a series of Jesus' teachings that speak into the life of the people to whom he's communicating. And so we recognize both the words of Jesus and the structure of Luke's storyline that begins here in Luke, continues into the book of Acts as we talk about the beginnings of the church. I also want to acknowledge, as I started out, the difficulty of this parable. There are so many different ways of looking at this parable. This parable feels, at least at some level, a little little bit confusing as to what's the point. What's the point Jesus is trying to make? And is Jesus really commending shrewd, dishonest behavior? Is that the message we're supposed to get from this? That we ought to follow in the footsteps of what it appears this dishonest manager is doing? 
And if you don't like that interpretation, how are you going to get to another interpretation? And so you can read commentator after commentator and, and somebody who goes in and looks at the original language and tries to get into the culture and will have many different ways by which to look at this passage. I just want to say that in some ways that's true of most of the passages of Scripture that we look at. We come to it with our own background, our own history. We bring our enculturization into the moment and then try and interact with the culture to whom it was written 2,000 years ago. Not only that, but I take it a step further and say that the scripture canon itself, written by many different people in different times, addressing a different audience, and come at issues from very different perspectives. It is, from my perspective, one of the most beautiful and fascinating aspects of our sacred literature. That we can raise a topic and say, well, I'll tell you what Scripture says about that. And then somebody else will say, I hear what you're saying, but can I also point out five other scriptures that seem to be saying something very different? Yeah, 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 but you can look at this one, and this one is very clear. I mean, how can you not see the black and white nature of this particular statement? Well, I'm not disagreeing that that statement is presented in a very black and white way, but can I take you to another passage of scripture? And say, why do you think this statement exists? It is in part what's so powerful about the word of God is that it was spoken into community, arises out of a community of writers and learners and people who are doing their best to listen to God's Holy Spirit and collectively we've said, this collection is sacred to us, in part because it speaks about both the difficulty and the joy of trying to work through our faith together. To hear the voice of the word and then to realize there's only one God, but there appear to be many voices through whom that sacredness has been spoken. As an aside, I think that's why it's important that here we hear from multiple voices. I, I love that um, during my sabbatical, Russ spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, and then Dean Nelson's class has been on the Sermon on the Mount for quite some time, and I referenced it in a passage when I came back um, and talked about it. I'm guessing that there were three different approaches on how to dig into the Sermon on the Mount and to allow it to begin to speak to us. And so broad and so deep is that passage, you could spend a lifetime there. We dig into these stories, these parables, and we've had in the last couple of months others who have spoken about these same parables. Parables. 
It's not as if we look at it and go, yeah, we've already talked about that. Let's move on to something else. Well, God speaks to us afresh and anew, given what this week has looked like for you. What this day holds, what you bring with you to the service. I'm often stunned when people come up to me and say, I can't believe two weeks ago you spoke on this, and I took this home, and, and this is how it changed my journey. And I don't remember what they're saying ever being spoken by me, at least. It might have been somebody after a song or in between a segue that led into communion. I'm not sure. If the Holy Spirit doesn't work in the midst of us, this is just a tedious process of spinning our wheels. But when God's Spirit begins to work in the community and we begin collectively to wrestle with what is right, what is good, what is just, what is loving, what is faithful, what is peacemaking. When we wrestle with the scripture and say, where does this lead us in terms of our individual journey, but our collective journey, both as a community of faith and living into the community where God has placed us? How then do we use our voice, our strength, our resources, our talents That's why it's so beautiful to hear the voices of Scripture and to have voices here. Next week, Matt Wilson is going to take us into the second half of chapter 16 and dig into the story of Lazarus. And in the coming months, we'll have some other voices in this midst that will begin to help us dig deeper into the things that take place. I believe deeply it's important for you. I also believe it's important for me. It's important to recognize there's not a single voice that speaks into these moments It's God's spirit at work that speaks in and through us as we discuss and hear these things that are opened up in the word. And so we have many voices that try and help us to understand this parable. Let me just offer one way by which to look at this. You may dig deeper in this group in your personal devotions or in small groups and try and dig out some other nuggets that are meaningful to you. It's a story of a rich man and a manager. That in itself becomes a little exclusive in terms of the culture and economics of the time. The rich man would be of a very small percentage of the time, probably the upper two or three percent of the economy would be those who were landowners, those who controlled some of the wealth, those who had the approval often of the Roman government or had avoided the Roman government and what they were able to accumulate. And then the manager, an opportunity to have a very well-paying job overseeing the owner's estate and holdings. Probably an absentee owner could be from Rome or someplace in the Roman Greco world or could lived in Jerusalem. Some would contend that this was somebody who would have lived in Jerusalem but had holdings. But to oversee that estate would be a well-paying job. This would be the middle class. But in this particular society, probably a very small middle class. Maybe 8 to 12% of the population had the kind of income that would allow the resources that this individual would have. 85 to 90% of the population would be in the poor category. So even though there might be 
a couple of Jesus' disciples that would hear this, that would fit in one of the other two categories, many of them would relate closely with the poor in the community. I don't know that they would immediately identify with the rich man, though they would have an ability to relate to someone they knew that might be that. Or even the manager. Some might connect well with that. I mean, among the disciples were a tax collector who had left that job but would recognize what it would be like to be in a position of power like that. Several who had, either they had or their family had a business of fishing might put them in that category. But many more who would come out of a context, 85% of the population, that would be poor. So they wouldn't be either of the two characters. They'd be on the receiving end of all the things that are taking place. The rich man finds out some accusations that the manager's being dishonest. I'm not sure who he hears it from, but I'm assuming he's hearing it from the people who owe money to the owner. Managers, not uncommon for them to be somewhat dishonest, something that was tolerated, but apparently it had gotten out of hand, and he was squandering away wealth. He was spending it everywhere, lavishly living on the income he could generate by that which he probably likely charged above and beyond what was actually owed. Not an unusual practice, but one that could create problems for those who are doing the work and the labor. And complaints came from somewhere that indicated that this manager was being overly dishonest. He was called to account. In verse 2, we have this accounting that begins, and panic sets in. What am I going to do? I can't dig ditches. I don't have enough strength to do that. I don't want to beg. And then, verse 4 comes up with a brilliant idea. I know what I'll do so that I can earn the approval of others and be welcomed into their homes. And so he goes to all of those who owe the master and has them rewrite their invoices. You heard what it was. How much do you owe the master? Oh, I owe all of this oil to the master. Olive oil. Gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons. Well, let's just take that and chop that down. Let's, what do you say, drop it in half? Goes to somebody else. One at a time, to each one. How much do you owe the master? Oh, so many bushels of wheat. Let's see if we can lower that bill for you. He began to earn the approval of those who were on the receiving end of those bills. Those who had to pony up what was needed. And then the master heard about that. And we begin to hear not only the master's response, but Jesus' commentary in verse 8. The master commends the servant for being so shrewd. It's like an attaboy. Nice job. It's almost as if he was saying, I didn't see that one coming. Well done. Now, there are some who would contend 
that what he cut off of the bill was actually his take. In other words, that was the way he earned his living. There was an exacted amount by the owner that was required, that had been lent, or that was due as a result of letting them use his land. And then what the manager added to that is not appropriate according to the law to charge fellow Jews interest, but there would be risk fees, that's my vernacular, but fees that would be added on top, and that would be what the manager would live off of, and the extent of what he was charging was creating such a heavy burden to people that they had complained. That's what some would assert. We don't find that necessarily in here, but there is some evidence that it was a common practice of the time, and what he did was he cut out all that would have been coming to him. They were able to pay their bills. The master saw more of the income that the master was expecting. And so he forgave the debt that was being piled on top of and on top of so that they could never get past this corrupt system that always kept them oppressed. He offered relief. Now it was to save his own hide. So you question the motive behind it. But the flip side might be the case. That he actually realized, oh, what I'm doing is not working. I mean, I got to live high as anyone I know for a long time. But I'm about to lose my job and I've got no friends. Was this methodology really worth it? I mean, this could have been an aha moment for the shrewd manager. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But the commentary, if we jump to the end of the commentary, is a pretty straightforward message. You can't serve two masters. We can draw on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for a little longer explanation of that. You'll either love the one and hate the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. And then both in that passage and this one, you can't serve both God and money. The truth is you can't serve God and anything else. Anything else is just idolatry. So here we have what appears to be a wake-up call. Whether the manager got it or not, I don't know. But Jesus is saying, will you be trustworthy in things of this world? If not, how can God trust you with the riches of the kingdom? So let's play out both of those scenarios. The riches of the world. And in this case, the, the language about unrighteous wealth or the wealth of injustice is a phrase that some interpreters use. How do you handle that? I ignore it when it benefits you. I ignore the truth of when something is unjust. Claim ignorance? I'm just making myself feel uncomfortable right now. I'm not even sure that these words make anybody else uncomfortable. Maybe it's because I know that feeling of, do I really want to know where this comes from? Our culture is certainly a bit different now. The class breakdown is dramatically different. 
But we all have to confess that any economic system doesn't work well for everyone. How do we step into economic systems that don't work well? There seems to be at least a nod toward jubilee here. The Old Testament concept that's never really been tested. The notion that on the 50th year, all land would revert to original owners, all debts would be brought to an end, all those who were oppressed through labor would be set free. Jubilee year. It's like a taste of what Jesus initiates by what Jesus did and wiping our debt clean. But how can you be trusted with understanding all of that if your interaction with what you have now does not exhibit the same kind of sense of compassion and love and kindness and care. There are just some tough questions. It seems this manager is putting into practice what it means to use the tangible things around me and the things to which I have access in a way that cares for others. It's interesting to me, the message here is not dramatically different than the previous four stories we've looked at. It's just this one is so incredibly uncomfortable because it strikes home too closely. What are the riches of the kingdom? What Christ did on the cross, grace. That's kingdom wealth. How Jesus treated people with love and compassion. That's the kingdom fortune. Forgiveness when somebody has not even asked for it. That's the kingdom way. praying for those in need and waiting on God to say, and how do you want me to step into action, Lord? How do I get to participate with you in what you're doing? Those are the kingdom riches. How do we begin to put that into practice? We, stepped in, we step into this wonderful cycle of gratitude for what God has done and in response, a life of giving, which breeds in others a spirit of gratitude, which then props those to be those who give. Gratitude begets giving, and giving begets gratitude, and gratitude begets giving, and giving begets gratitude. I'd like to close before we go to the table of grace with a clip that maybe some of you have seen. It's actually a commercial that was put out by a telecommunications company in another country. The language is a foreign language. The subtitles are in English. I hope they're large enough that you can see them. It is two storylines separated by 30 years. 
And it speaks of this very principle. Go ahead and play that for us, if you will. I contend that this parable is just a continuation of identity. The lost identity in the previous chapter, finding our identity in Christ. The invitation here is not to be a manager of the kingdom of God. It's to recognize we're owners. There are people in this church who have taught me what it means to own this place as sacred ground. I see back there, and I know he's going to be embarrassed that I call him out, but Herb Prince is one of those. Dave Brown was one of those. Aileen Sharn is one of those. The way they think about this place, the people of this place, the physical place that it is, the way they care. And I could list dozens of others. They're not managing anything. The kingdom 
kingdom is ours to own and treat it as if it is God's precious gift. I notice things I wouldn't notice otherwise because this place is mine and yours as sacred space, as are the networks of friendships, the opportunities, the work opportunities that you have and where you've been placed. We're not called to be managers. We're not called to be hired hands. We've been entrusted, as this passage says, with property of our own, the kingdom of heaven. The invitation to the table of grace, to the disciples, is to take up the mantle of what it means to be heirs of the kingdom like we are. Mark, will you come and let me offer a prayer right now? Lord, teach us through the gift of communion, both your great sacrifice, your gift in so many ways, and our calling to a new identity in you. Amen. Thank you, Dee. We come to the table in response to what we've heard through God's word. As I was thinking about today and coming to the table, uh, probably like for many of you, when you think of this table, many of us think of it in ways that has been shaped by our own journeys and our own faith. For example, uh, for me growing up, the table was really viewed primarily as somewhat of a memorial, a way to remember of what Christ has done for us. And certainly, it does, it is about this memorial. It also, I begin to learn that the table has a variety of other meanings. Uh, it is a table that we come to that reminds us that someday we will be feasted at a table with Christ in all eternity. We will gather around this table and worship our Lord and Savior. It's a reminder today also that the table is, a, is the connection between the diversity and unity of the church, universal. So thousands of Christians for 2,000 years from all different contexts gather around this table as one faith, one Lord, and one baptism. All those, I think, are ways that we could come to the table and to think about it. But today I'd like to suggest to us that the table really is a means by which that we encounter the very presence of Christ so that we might be transformed and made into his image and likeness. We all come to this table broken. We all come to this table in need of healing and renewal and forgiveness. We all come to this table recognizing that our own formation and our faith, as we've heard in this sermon, is not only for us, but for the sake of others. And so today, as we come to the table, I just encourage you to bring your full self to it, that you bring your brokenness, maybe your pain, your suffering, maybe your rebellion, and may you come to the table and receive the grace that God has given us to bring about wholeness and peace 
and renewal. I invite you to pray with me. Gracious God, we come to you today recognizing that we are in need of you. We recognize that as we've heard in this sermon that we are to give our lives for you and for the sake of others. And we're reminded today that we cannot do this on our own, but we need your grace to love and to love deeply, to love ourselves, to love others, to love our creation and all that you have made. And so I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and upon these gifts, that in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the juice, may the very presence of the living Christ renew us as the body of Christ for the world so that we might be your witnesses to love as you have loved us. And may we receive healing and forgiveness and renewal and hope as the grain and grapes once dispersed in the fields now are united at the table of bread and juice. May we all be your people gathered from every time and place into the unity that is within your household, a feast of your table forever and ever. Amen. I would invite those who are going to serve us to come at this time. And just to remind you that as you come to the table uh, to receive the elements, they are, the bread is gluten-free. And so when you come to the table, uh, take the elements back to your seat and we will share those together. So I invite you to come. The table is prepared for you to receive healing in God's grace.
Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you, and as often as you eat from this bread, remember me and do so in thanks. Let's eat together. In the same way, he took the cup gave thanks, and he said, this is the, the cup of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, and as often as you drink from it, to, to give thanks, let's drink together. Amen. I would invite you, if you would, to join me as we receive our benediction, if you'd stand. And as we receive the benediction, I would invite you just to extend your hands out as a way to receive. So hear this benediction today as we go. Glorious and loving God, you have healed our brokenness and nourished us at the table of holy food and drink. Now as we go from this place of worship, may we become... As we heard today in the sermon, may we become Christ's broken body and shed blood to our world and to others. And may we enter into the brokenness of others so that they may bring forth hope and redemption and peace. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said together, amen, amen. Go in peace. Thank you.